Coming Up Next Time podcast is brought to you in part by Built to Ride. Head over to builttoride.ca and pick up some coffee or apparel. Use the exclusive listener code COMEUP when you check out for an additional 20% off your order. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Barry Moore. I wish to start off by introducing the band behind the new lead-in song, Regal Fowl, made up of Jerry, Brian, and Mitch. They're a local Bow Valley punk band. In my effort to promote Western Canadian talent, I reached out to these artists and they agreed to help. They lent me this song, Pigments, to be the lead-in music for coming up next time. So thank you guys, I appreciate it a great deal. My next guest is a Western Canadian legend, racing both in America and Canada, and doing very well in Enduro Cross came to my attention after finishing an event with a broken leg. He's also an entrepreneur and founder of Built to Ride. Coming up next, this is Malcolm Hett. Yeah, the, the feedback from the community is super positive. Um, I'm waiting for the riding season to to really start up because then I think things will explode. Because no, basically yeah. it's just been over winter, right? you know, and people, I mean, whatever, there's about 150 to 200 people who download regularly now. And, um, like the Instagram following is just around 250 people Yeah, and everybody's connected to everybody. So it's sort of like a really tight group. Like they may be all over the world, but they're like one degree of separation from each other. Like I could probably draw a line. The quality of that audience you have, you don't have 5,000, 10,000 fake followers that don't actually give a shit about what you're doing. If you can have a small amount of people that care, that goes a long way. Oh man, I'd rather, yeah, exactly. I'd rather have it just be like no bigger than the actual riding community in Western yep. Canada. You know, <laughs> like it's it's a hell of a lot of people, but I think as a tool to give some of the new folks a chance to understand how everybody's just real. Like um, I've done it myself. You show up to the race, and then just like the first line of guys, you're just like, "Oh man, they're all superheroes." Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, their their life is awesome. They must make a shit ton of money. Then you see the first prize check for like a hundred dollars. Yeah, and you realize I spent six hundred bucks to be here for the weekend. Like, fuck. Yeah. Well, you're you're, you're like you're describing the 13, 14 year old me in that first bit, except for the realization part because I was looking up to these, uh, you know, back in that day, Clay Glasgow and a few of these Canadian pro guys, and I thought yeah. they were the top of the world. These guys are making money. He's on a KTM. KTM must be paying him. <laughs> you know, that was kind of the mindset. Yeah. I'm not realizing that that guy's losing money being here. <laughs> every minute they race, they lose money. Like yeah. uh, the, the guys go through every two years. Um, and I think that cycle was set by the, like the sponsorships, like, so yeah. the ambassadorships and whatever, like the, the sponsored riders will say the guys that get a discount on a bike their contracts are every two years. Right. And oh, uh, so, and to stay competitive with them, you got to stay competitive. And a lot of guys try to buy the podium and uh, like, I don't know, there's some guys on clapped out rat bag bikes that can do it better than yeah. the guy or girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's essentially, it's all about the rider, right? Like almost a hundred percent, like 90%, you know, if, if I'm going to go race an enduro cross on an 88 XR 100, then I might be at a down, you know, a little bit of a downside there. But, yeah. but put me on, you know, a 2005 CR250. I'm not going to do much worse than I am on a 2020 TPI. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, uh, yeah, it is about having the right tool for the job. Oh, yeah. They are sort yeah. of specialized. 
in a way. Oh, for sure. Like, yeah. You know, kids PW50 isn't going to help me win a woods race. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, oh, the terrain, I used to take an RMZ 450 through, I would take an RMZ 450 through Ayersburg, Carl's Diner level stuff. And that was not the right tool for the job. <laughs> the, uh, the very first Enduro cross I ever uh, made the main event in, in the pro class, I was racing a DRZ yeah. 400. <laughs> Holy crow, man. Yeah. And that was just, that was the tool I had, you know, that was, uh, it wasn't an AMA event. It was a Orofino Enduro Cross, which is a pretty big, you know, standalone Enduro Cross down there. They do get like the Cody Webbs and Colton Haker is coming to race. So the first time I went there, I had a DRZ 400. That was a bike I had. So that's what I raced. <laughs> that's awesome. Like that. Yeah. That's, I remember Jared Stock. He was like, he was racing on a borrowed bike. One. So it's just like, you guys, yeah, just make it happen. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, I feel that's bad for much you, it. you guys that are addicted to racing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so speaking of hard-ass races, uh, going through um, what I could find on the internet about you that wasn't about a rock slide. Uh, <laughs> you you saw that too, eh? <laughs> yeah. Man, well, it's just like, uh, I was kind of laughing because you show up in the news more than you do in the sports because just yeah. how inbound traffic for, for oh yeah that. everybody reads the news and all that um so it was really hard to weed through but you did a 24-hour race in october yeah like so that's recent yeah just last year i did did that 24 hours so um events like that like 24 hour in specific since i was in my early 20s that's been on my bucket list to do and i've had quite a few events where i was you know 23 years old i said this year i'm doing the isde and then i have these catastrophic injuries and body failures that don't allow it 24 hour race was on that list where this year I'm doing a 24 hour. No, I'm injured next year. Doesn't quite pan out. And then, uh, so finally through everything last year, getting canceled with racing and all that, when that popped up kind of short notice, I said, I can make that let's go. <laughs> like what's it like racing for 24 hours, man. It's hard to do two hours or three hours oh yeah i mean it just it takes that pacing yourself to a whole new level i'm pretty fortunate that you know i'm a little bit of, i'm addicted just to being physically active so i'm in shape you know unless i'm badly injured i'm ready to race for the most part but at 24 hour that's where that race management comes into play and i did have some interesting times in there because i didn't lead that race from the start i won at the end but i didn't lead at the start and those uh the fellow that i was battling with for the first while i knew his pace wasn't sustainable but being a little bit older now, you yeah. know, I'm maybe, you know, when I was 20, 22, yeah. I probably would have banged bars of them and burnt myself out. But when he wanted to bang bars a few times, he got in front of me. I pass him after a little bit. I said, you go. That's fine. It's, we're two hours into this thing. Let's see where you are 10 hours from now. Because that's what's going to start. That's where it's going to start to separate us. Yeah. The race craft, pacing yourself, actually being aware enough. Because a lot of people push their bodies to that limit. And still have an hour, two hours, whatever it is to go, because they're just not aware of where they are in the race. So, um, and I had a couple goals in that. I wanted to go alone. Like I wanted to drive alone, pit alone. I didn't want anyone to touch my fuel tank, anything. I said, I'm doing this Ironman. I'm going to do the whole thing, Ironman. Don't touch my food. This is all me. <laughs> so, and that's what I did. And I didn't want to stop. That's crazy. I, I stopped for fuel and food. That's it. I didn't want to take a break other than getting gas in my bike and you know fuel in my body like uh did they have mandatory pits or something like that so it's uh it's not too long of a loop you know it's you know a 15 to 18 kilometer loop so we're doing multiple laps and you can do you know okay. depending on your bike yep. three to five laps without you know running out of fuel or however that may work for you 
So you do those laps, you come in and pit. Yeah. So I kind of worked it. I had a game plan I, and I knew that my game plan, I wouldn't be able to stick to it. That was kind of obvious, but I had a, kind of a base plan. Yeah. Where I, yeah. I would, I would try to do three laps and pit. And that first pit would be fuel and a meal. I'd do three laps and then fuel and snack, three laps, fuel and meal, three laps. Yeah. And that was kind of my base. And then I kind of adjusted as I went when, you know, I, I, you have to stay on top of your body big time. If you start to feel the crash, if you start to feel dehydrated or hungry, it's almost too late. If you're not staying on top of it, you know, the recovery time is, yeah. is a lot worse, especially mid race. I was going to ask about hydration. Like, uh, how the heck do you stay up with electrolytes and water? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm lucky enough that I, I drink a lot of water and I'm hydrated any day of the week. It's kind of pounded into my mindset, but through that I had two, two liter bags and, uh, I would keep them full and I'd put the two scoops of, uh, no relation or sponsorship, but that Rhino power carbo fuel, um, that that's a product that I've relied on for years. Okay. So I would put a couple scoops of that. And then, um, when I'd come in to switch my, or, you know, get my meal and my fuel for my bike, I would switch my bag. And when I would come in for the next one, I would fill the other bag up, put the scoops in and I would do it pretty quick. Like I'd try to be in and out within five minutes kind of thing and, and get out of there. So, yeah, I think my longest pit throughout the whole thing was around midnight when I changed the oil, I checked my air filter, checked for, you know, broken spokes and bolts. And I actually changed the oil and filter in my bike. And, but that was like, I, I barely took my helmet off to do the work on the bike and then got going again. <laughs> oh, okay. That's crazy, man. That's super intense. Like, uh, we have an, a race here called the 24 hour of adrenaline and it's a mountain bike race. Okay. Yeah. So they have this loop and the guy's just like, whatever, it's pretty brutal. And, uh, usually around 10 o'clock at night, people start to fade, but as the sun sets, um, and then it goes to pitch black, like pretty quick, uh, these guys start like falling off. Oh well. yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah, the the teams like with six riders or so, they seem to be okay. You go to the camp, well, it's not camp, but it's like base camp, and they're exactly all sleeping. yeah. <laughs> and then wake up for their shift, and that's about it. But like uh, the guys, there's always a few guys who do it alone or do it in pairs, and then there's another guy here called Crazy Larry who uh, <laughs> runs like for 24 hours around the camp with a parachute on his back to support the riders. Oh, wow. Uh, Funny you bring up the 24 hour mountain bike race. Yeah. Yeah. Because now where I am in my life and with the racing career and that I've kind of realized where my strengths and weaknesses lay. And I do lean into both at different times. You know, I'm very into, you know, doing things I'm weak at to build those strengths, but also my strength in motorcycle racing. I'm not, you know, a top tier moto guy, and even hair scrambles, enduro, and desert, I'm a good racer I'm, and I'm a fast guy. But 24 hours, hard enduros, anything that really pushes you and tests you to that, that's where my strengths lay. So at Silver Star Mountains, our local ski yeah. resort here, they're doing a 24-hour mountain bike race. They were going to be doing one uh, last year and this year. Both years have been canceled. They just recently announced they canceled this one again. And I just started mountain biking about 12, 13 months ago. And so as I was getting into mountain biking, I was thinking, oh, this, this could be fun. You know, maybe I'll fill this gap of motorcycle racing because I can't travel around and race, obviously, with these cancellations and distance. So I thought, heck, why, why don't I make my very first mountain bike race as an inexperienced mountain biker, per se, a 24-hour? <laughs> but I haven't been oh, able man. to make that happen yet. But I think that's something I would enjoy. Well, I imagine the one here in Alberta will kick off before year one in BC. Like, I could take a look and see what's going up and send you an email or something. 
Oh, I'm interested. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty big event and uh, it draws a huge crowd and it's at the Nordic Center. So it's varied terrain, um, lots of up and down hills. Uh, you'd be at a disadvantage because I feel like the veterans know every bump and, and groove. Oh, big time. Yeah. Post, you know, but I mean, a test like that isn't really a test against other people as much as it is against yourself. So. No, and, and what you're saying there, that's something that took me over a decade to learn, you know, not a test against other people, to test yourself, because that's how I would relate myself, you know, to success and my accomplishments from 13 years old up until I was in my mid-20s. Well, he did this, he won this, he's making this much money, or he's racing these races, and I'm not. So that must mean I'm a failure in some sense, when you realize, you know what, that's that's not true, because, you know, it's you're testing yourself. And that took me quite a while to realize that and to kind of switch my mindset into that. Yeah. It's something that I've noticed, even with some of my guests, like um, they still don't, I don't know, see themselves as like the great people that they are, you know, they're, they have these future goals until they attain them. They, they haven't self-actualized and, and like when they do attain them, there's some more future goals. So it just seems like you're always just shy of, of being the awesome human being you think you want to be meanwhile oh yeah yeah so it's it's pretty yeah i don't know it's weird um so there's you're there's more to you than than motorcycles and and uh mountain bikes which mountain bikes seem to fill your i instagram feed right now it's pretty awesome <laughs> oh you know it's funny because i tell people like, i wish i could ride as much as you and this and that and i'd be like uh you know going into that you know it's comes down to time management for me. It's not that I'm any less busy than anyone else, but like I said, I don't consume a ton of media. I don't, you know, do a ton of, you know, I'm a social person. I like to chat and talk, but I'm not one to, you know, scroll or just kind of go out to the park and try to find someone to talk to or whatever people may do. It's, it's, Hey, I have an extra hour. I'm mountain biking. I have an extra two hours. I'm on the dirt bike. And I don't even, I don't post every single time I'm out on a bike either. <laughs> like it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a big time management thing, but I am, I do fit a lot of what's important to me in. So you, you have uh, a side project, I guess, called built to ride. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah. so it's a bit, it's a passion born project. So that kind of was brought to me, you know, to fruition of where we are now through injuries, through motorcycle racing, because you say, you know, I'm a lot more than just a dirt bike rider, dirt bike racer. Tell that to 15-year-old me, 20-year-old me. I, I would just tell you, you're wrong. This is my persona. This is who I am. This is the box I fit in. You're wrong. This is who I am. My whole identity is being wrapped up in that one thing for decades now. Um, and back to the Built to Ride thing, the first Built to Ride t-shirt I made with a Sharpie. <laughs> I literally was about 15 or so years old. And uh, a friend of mine, he had a plain white T-shirt, probably from Walmart, who knows where. And I had this Fox T-shirt with flames and skulls or whatever on it back, you know, when I'm 14, 15. And uh, we were out BMX riding and we traded T-shirts. So I took a Sharpie and I wrote built to ride across my T-shirt. And then, you know, you have metal class in high school, you know, for the high school classes, I didn't skip out and attend back then. And, you know, I'd make these dirt bike stands and cars built to ride in them and whatever else. So it wasn't anything more than that. You know, my email or whatever would be built to ride when I was 16 years old. And then the first, you know, I've had quite a few injuries, but the first major injury I had to my right leg, ankle and foot, I was kind of flat on my back for a bit. So that's where I kind of told my wife, Hey, I want to take this built to ride thing and kind of roll with it a bit. Let's print 48 hats and 48 shirts. And I'm going to these races anyway. I'm addicted to being there and just supporting. And we did that and we sold out. 
Oh, let's make another 48 sold out. Okay. Let's do a new design. And then, you know, we're not lighting the world on fire. You know, we're not, you know, DC shoes with millions of dollars of product going out, but we're steadily growing, you know, we're, you know, we're no debt, no loan business that, you know, is keeps us a bit small, but it's, it's one of those, uh, you know, it's kind of cheesy to say, you know, it's the passion over profit. And that's maybe not the best aspect for a businessman or someone who's really into money and profit to say, but it's, you know, it's who I am. So it's the route we're taking. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like if all it ever does is uh, gives you the money to ride, then I think that's a win, right? Like, you know, the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Race signups and tires. <laughs> yeah, man. Like, geez, the, like, I, I feel every, every rider would love to find this, the high, the side hustle that keeps the cost of the, beyond the purchase of the bike down. Right. Like, yeah. Oh, absolutely. It is time consuming, but it, it's beneficial at the same time. Yeah, you bet. I mean, and it, and it, it's like rewarding. It's not just like going and cutting a few extra lawns in a week or something like that. Like, um, oh, so it's a lot more you, of a creative outlook than anything like that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's awesome. You you had it trademarked. Like, um, I found that in in my search too. Like, you have a um, Canada trademark for a built to ride. Like, was yeah, that absolutely a, that was that was step one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The process of that was, you know, making some phone calls, trying to get the right uh, paperwork and this and that. And it cost a couple thousand dollars to do that. And that was like startup money. I, 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 as an individual lent the entity built to ride an X amount of dollars to start it. And over half of that went to trademarking it. But I said, I don't want to start this without a little bit of protection. But the funny thing is we're trademarked. We keep up on fees, but Hey, if some big company with a lot more money in their bank starts to use, um, starts to use our name, our built to ride thing, then we're not going to be able to fight them. We can't afford lawyers and this and that to fight that. You know, if, you know, yeah. Nike or some big corporation wants to use it, you know, we're going to be a little uh, <laughs> out of luck, but so far so good. Yeah. I wonder if there's like, I don't know, poor man's lawyers to protect you. Like if Canada would fight for you against internationals. <laughs> yeah. That'd be sweet. Um, so earlier I mentioned the rock slide. Uh, like the, the story that I read is basically there was a few rocks on the road. And so you just got out of your vehicle to like move them out of the way so you could proceed. And then. Yeah. <laughs> so I've had a few people bring it up. Like, why would you stop in the first place? But where I live, that rock side was about two minutes from my front door. So when I leave my house, I go down towards a little lake that uh, has a little parkway you have to drive to get to the highway. And the left side of that lake is just, you know, a 20 foot to 80 foot rock ledge. And probably once every two weeks, there's a few rocks on the ground, nothing big, you know, a couple fist size rocks. And I'll pull over, kick them off the road just so that I don't have to run them over. And the guy in his BMW cruising around the lake doesn't run them over either. Yeah. So that's kind of normal. And that's exactly what I did. I'm going to stop for one minute, kick these off the road. And uh, as I was outside my van doing that, that's when the whole hillside just happened to let loose while I was standing there. That's insane. Uh, like the, that's like biblical. You're just like all the noise it must've made. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Like, yeah, I don't know. Oh yeah. It was a pretty big ominous crack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I bet. That's awesome. So you sent me a video with a pretty horrible sound. <laughs> like, uh, you're, you're okay. I know yeah, what's coming up here. <laughs> you want to tell me about how that happened? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, uh, going a little bit before that, enduro cross has just been something that 
I really found a bit of a strength in and I enjoy it, especially getting older. My body's a bit more beat up. Those short bursts are a little easier for me to handle at speed. And just the technicality of it, that, that just goes right to my nature kind of thing. Yeah. So I'd always kind of gone down for two or three enduro crosses a year, what I could afford to do. That year, 2018, we're talking about, that was my year where I said, you know what? I don't care. I'm doing this series. I'm doing the whole, I bought a brand new bike. I was ready to go and travel and do all the enduro cross series. So we're talking about round one, Prescott, Arizona, 30 hour drive down there and all that. And, um, I was fit. I was ready. I was going into it pretty confident thinking, you know, I'm a podium guy in here. I'm going to be okay. You know, I sign up for, you know, the expert class and pro class. I can sign up for both. And, and, uh, obviously the video kind of explains itself what kind of happened there, but that was white flag waving last lap, second place. And my confidence was, Hey, I just did this whole race at 80%. I'm a wicked up 10, 20% here. First place is 50 feet in front of me. This win is mine. I'm not thinking, Hey, I'm about to podium. I'm crossing that finish line thinking I'm about to win this thing. Yeah. But I still, to this day, I'm not sure how this happened. If I was cross rutted, if I just blipped the throttle wrong or got kicked, the, that that lip of that jump is beyond vertical at the top. It's those tires with the lip. Yeah. So that dirt gets dug out over the course of a main event. So that could affect it too. But I just came over that thing, you know, 25 plus feet in the air. My nose was so high. I couldn't even reach my rear brake and I ejected. I got, you know, I just tossed my bike away. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you saw the video and I, even I wrote a little journal entry on the built to ride website about that too, where I described the feeling of coming down from that height landing on my foot because my, my midfoot dislocated one way, my ankle dislocated the other way inside my boot and my, bones just got pulverized the right hand side of my foot actually got shorter it got so crumpled even in those cd boots my foot shrank in length they had to jack my foot out and re-lengthen it during surgery holy holy crow man all like yeah i just yeah yeah when uh, i played the video for my wife and then there's just like this guttural sound that is emitted (laughs) from your yeah like i know you didn't like, no, it was happening. It was just happening, you know, like, and, uh, like, yeah. Oh yeah. were taking place, but the sounds, I don't think you're aware of the sounds. They're just happening. Just like, Oh, uh, and I'm just like, Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, you don't have a choice at that point. It just comes out. Right. But, but you know what, that's something like that's a unique opportunity, right? Like it's, you can do that, get in that injury zone and you can roll over and, and die essentially, you not know, die, but quit. Um, but the opportunity presents itself. And I, my first thought isn't, Hey, my, I knew the damage was done. I knew it was extensive, but my first thought is, hell, look at this opportunity. I can get up. It's like Rocky getting up when he's knocked down on the ground on that last round of boxing, right? It's like, I'm going to get up. I'm picking this bike up and I will finish. And, you know, everybody, you know, likes to do those cliche things of never give up, never quit and all that. But life doesn't necessarily give you those opportunities all that often. So, if you can seize that opportunity and that's kind of exactly what I thought of, Hey, this not only is a 24 hour race and enduro cross, those situations I feel are built for me being put into that situation that happened. I'm the perfect guy to do that. It's like, I know, I know you're familiar with David Goggins. I yeah. heard you mentioned him with yeah, uh, yeah. another podcast. The 40. And it's, so it's kind of one of those things where it's the 40%. Yeah. You know where I'm going with that. And, and, you know, in that aspect, I think a lot of people would hear that and say, you're right. I'll push past that 40%. And they do, but they push to 50 to 60 and they think, okay, here's the cap. That's hundred percent. Yeah. 
to get to that 90 to 100% mark, it takes a special mind and a special mindset that you can learn and develop, but you can't just snap your fingers and get it. You have to be put in those situations and you have to be mindful enough to take advantage of that situation. Yeah, you definitely, you have to rise to it. Like, uh, I thought it was pretty rad. The The fellow who handed you back your bike, the look on his face, like, just like, you're going to go back out. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just like, and then the cheer, like everybody. Yeah, I think I think he knew I wasn't going to take no. Yeah, well, yeah, no, I think, uh, like, some guys are just wired to, to just carry on, right? And, like, I'm glad he had the sense to see it and not try to fight you on it, you know, like, because there are other people. Oh, he, he wouldn't have won that fight. He would have <laughs> taken up more of your time, let you stand there in agony longer before you got to finish your thing. You know, like <laughs> at least he would have kept up your adrenaline because combat keeps up the adrenaline. <laughs> like that's yeah, absolutely. Oh, man. Yeah. I was an instant fan just from there on. Like, uh, no, dude, it takes, oh, it takes a lot. That. Like it takes more than physical strength to do that. Uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, there's something wrong upstairs. I don't know, but it's just like something that like you dig deep and you just push forward and it is pretty respectable. I'm glad the the finish line wasn't too far off. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that, uh, that was a good feeling getting over that, but you know, looking back now, I really appreciate the, you know, the crowd standing behind me, you know, that was loud, you know, it's, you know, it was great. But at the time it all was kind of mute to me because I was just looking ahead. Let's get 20 feet at a time. Let's move ahead. Cause I'm crossing that finish line under my own power, that's going to happen. So looking back, I can appreciate it a lot more. But in the moment, I was, let's cross this finish line. Let's go to the medics. <laughs> so um, you you also mentioned in your, your bio about concussions and things. Um, have you found that they've had a major impact on your life as you got older or... Yeah, you know, this isn't really a subject I've gone too deep into conversating with people. And it's something I'm very interested in. You know, I like to think of myself as an open person and somebody could ask me about concussions and effects and anything else. And in person, face to face, I am that person. Yeah. But I don't really put myself out there online all that often with this. Um, but I have had quite a number of concussions, uh, unconscious quite a few times. Um, I've had my bell rung, you know, quite quite a lot. You know, I've, I've definitely had, I don't keep count, but if it's not a stretch to say I've had a dozen plus bad concussions yeah. in my life. And... Uh, yeah. And, you know, I, I remember my first bad, bad one. I had a few before this, but my a really bad one I had, I was racing and uh, my back end got kicked up by a pretty big rock and I just got hucked right over the side of the bike head first. And, you know, story goes on. I do finish the race and I get home. And at this point, I was 15, 16 years old living with my parents still. And I couldn't go to school. I was throwing up. I was and my parents knew, OK, he's got a concussion. We'll keep they weren't too, you know, research in it, but he says he's not feeling good. Stay home from school for a day or two then. And uh, two days later, I got up and I said, I'm going to school. I got to go to school and see my girlfriend and my friends and blah, 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 whatever a 15, 16 year old says, right? I get up and I, we lived out in the country, you know, it was an hour long bus ride just to get to the closest high school. So I get up at 6am and go to have a shower. I step in the shower. And the minute that water touches me, I blacked out. I, I just passed out. I fell over. I hit my head again on the side of the tub and I got knocked out in a bathtub naked. My dad comes into the bathroom, opens the door and takes the shower curtain down. What are you doing? And I kind of come to us going to school. 
get up, get out of here naked. He gets me out of the tub and get back in your room. Something's not right here. And that was kind of my first experience where at the time I thought, this is badass. I'm Matt Hoffman. I hit my head. It's almost like a bragging right to a kid. But as the years go by, you start to think back of, I took a lot of hits to the head. I've been unconscious this many times. And now I look back over, you know, Mostly my, my thoughts on that kind of come towards me 23 years old and on because I had some more injuries that affected me mentally that weren't head hitting then. But I go back and I think, hey, the way that I'm affected mentally from being torn off my bike and my passion for these amounts of time, even if I didn't hit my head, am I having these thoughts and is this all coming to fruition because of concussions changing my you know the thoughts and how I'm relating to these things or is this who I am? And it's a tough subject. I, it's there's a lot that goes into it. Yeah, I imagine like, oh, when, it's it's hard to express or even to understand how like a you know traumatic brain injury like a concussion can literally rewrite the way you think. Oh yeah, yeah. It's just it. I don't know. I like I I recognize like as a dad and my kids eight this this year and he's riding around and he's had some pretty close moments uh, as he's pressing limits on his bike. And just like the potential for significant injury out of the blue, not, not when you're really trying, just out of the blue oh, yeah. is, is really there now. Cause he's not just on the couch, right? Like he, he's at the pump track doing jumps. Yeah. Um, almost had to get off with that. And just like, and then, you know, I'm, I'm whatever in my mid forties, I know a lot of guys, uh, various ages and, and, uh, you know, it's had, long-term effects yeah you know and this is stuff like when you're 18 or even like in your case 16 don't even think about as like uh, a 40-year plan (laughs) like oh exactly like i said it's like a bragging right you look up to travis pastrana and matt hoffman and dave mira and these guys and you see these video parts of oh look pastrana's knocked out unconscious on a ramp again but he gets up he's awesome but how is and but that's a whole other aspect of it too is Matt Hoffman and Pastrana, they're both riding. They both seem okay. They're not, I, I find the two of them, are, those are two athletes I kind of follow and, and, and get inspired by, but neither of them seem too open about talking about any, you know, negative aspects of it. And is that because it, they're not being asked those questions or be putting it out there? Or is it because they're not having the same effects? Um, I just mentioned Dave Mira. He was my childhood hero as well, along with those guys. Yeah. And you hear about CTE and his suicide being due to, to depression and this and that. But I've also heard close friends of his put out an argument state that say that uh, he was, you know, dealing with something else. He was dealing with identity. He didn't know who he was. He retired from pro BMX, which is the same as retiring from pro supercross or anything else. He didn't know who he was. He was boxing, doing triathlons. He was doing everything else. And he was having a huge identity crisis. And um, that, that's something that's pretty interesting too. It's not talked about too much in our sports and it doesn't just affect Eli Tomac and Ryan Villapoto. It affects me. It affects these guys that are, you know, you ask 13, 14 year old me who 30 year old me is going to be, I'm getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars from Suzuki to be an off-road racer. That doesn't come to fruition. I have an identity crisis because I'm not this guy I set myself out to be just because I'm not in the mainstream media as these top level, level ath- athletes, it affects everybody. And it's, that identity aspect of it can really be a crumbling part to people's minds as well. And maybe when you compound that with the concussions and these mindsets, maybe that combination is a perfect recipe for, you know, a downward, downward spiral. Once you get to pro and you're just constantly racing uh, and you're, I don't know, and, and you're chasing the podium and your career can come and go, uh, it still was pretty awesome. But like when you think that 
like you said, 30, that's like retirement age for a lot of racers. Uh, and like, I know mm -hmm. guys in their sixties who have retired and they were their job. Like that was the most significant part of their identity. And then post retirement, they no longer had that. They no longer had the network of uh, people who came to them for their advice and for all that kind of stuff. They just sort of nothing but free time and nobody wants them and all that kind of stuff. And it like wears on them, you know, and I imagine there's probably a high number of suicide for men in their sixties to seventies, just because they've lost who they thought they were without realizing that there's somebody else now, like there's a whole life now, but I don't know. I just, I wonder if that same thing happens to like young yeah. riders. Like I've been listening to a lot of the motocross guys who are just in their late twenties and they're talking like they're 65 year old men retired and they don't know what they're going to do next. And yeah, it's just, it's insane. You know, I, I, I can relate to that in aspect too, that not retirement, but I was forced into these situations where I had my identity ripped away from me in that aspect. You know, when I'm 18 years old and I get my first knee surgery, when I'm 20 and I break these bones in my wrist, that's three months, six months, I'm back racing, I'm in the gym. That's okay. I can handle that. That's, that's a speed bump. That's barely anything. But when I was 23 years old, almost 24, that's when I had that big injury on my right leg. I, when I did essentially what you saw me do to my left leg, ankle, and all that in that video, mm -hmm. I did that to my right side a few years earlier. Oh my. So when I did that, that stopped me dead in my tracks. I couldn't ride. I couldn't race. I was going to physio in the gym when I could, when I wasn't in, in so much excruciating pain. But it was it was just one of those things that was really tough to deal with that identity of yourself. I'm wrapped up from 13 years old till 23, 24. This is my path. I'm a pro motorcycle racer. This is all I know. It's all I care about. And this is where my time's dedicated towards. So when I had that kind of ripped away from me, it wasn't like you can say the aspect of like, Hey, your life's being turned upside down. That's not what happened to me. My life, it was like a bomb went off. It blew my life to pieces. I had pieces of me like shrapnel that were spread out over here, over there. And it's like all these pieces that made me who I am. Now I can't pursue this path that I set out for myself. And the thing I've been so obsessed about 24 seven, since a 13 year old kid, I've started riding at three, but 13, 12, 13 is where my mind switched to, I don't care. I'm racing motorcycles. Yeah. And when that got stripped away from me, it was, it put me on a shaky foundation, but like mentally, spiritually, and like quite literally, like I was unstable to the point I couldn't, I couldn't piece my life back together. I, and I still, I literally was unstable enough. I couldn't stand on one leg, like literally. <laughs> so that, that was tough. And then at that same time, if you don't mind me expanding on that a bit, when I was 23, 24, and I went through that, I was, I was in a bit of an unstable spot and I was, I really was struggling. And at that same time, my dad passed away yeah. and some people are, you know, closer than others with their parents or family. My dad and I were best friends. I called him every day, every race, every, like he was my riding partner. He was, he was kind of my, you know, he, he was my best friend. So when yeah. he passed away and that was, you know, six months after my injury, that was like, that just kind of imploded me a bit to the point where I was, what do I do now? Who am I now? And uh, that, that was a tough, tough situation for me. And my safeguard then was this, what's going to distract me? Is it work? Is it physical aspects of this? And I had to find these distractions and uh, you know, whether I'd just be, let's say I, I had to go to physiotherapy a lot. So I'd go to physio and say my appointment was at 11 or noon and they do a one hour appointment for you. So you do one hour as a physiotherapist in this, 
Dude, I would stay in that physiotherapist till five, six o'clock. They literally would, they'd have their one hour appointment for me. Okay, that's it. And I'd say, I'm going to stay here and use your equipment in your gym. It's big enough. You only have a couple other guys coming in. Yeah. It'd be five, six o'clock. Their last patient's gone. They spend 30 minutes doing paperwork. They come up to me and say, hey, we're going to shut the lights off and lock the door. You got to get out of here. You can here for six hours. And I say, okay, off to the next thing. Because I just had to distract myself from that you know, what was inside my head. And I distract myself by pushing my body. And it's, it's good because it kept me fit. It kept me, you know, I recovered, you know, relatively, not really quickly, but you know, well, I recovered well, just because my body was so strong. But at the same side, side of things, I pushed that mental aspect of that myself to the side for so long. And if you keep doing that and not dealing with yourself and using these delay mechanisms, eventually another bomb's going to go off. Yeah. 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 You're setting yourself up for a hell of a future. <laughs> like, It'd be tough for anyone to go through lo- losing your identity and career sort of in one moment. And then just as you're coming to terms with it, losing your best friend and your dad in, this, in another moment, like I could see how someone would just yeah. spiral under, out of control. And that could look like anything like for your, for you, it was like super intense recovery, like just focus, 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 drive, 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 and ignore the whole thing, put up a giant wall between you and the, yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. Yeah, that's pretty much what I did there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't want to deal with that right now. That can stay there. I'll deal with that later. But as we, you and me both, as we get older, you put it off to later. It doesn't take long for six months, a year, three years to go by, and then those things creep up. You got to yeah, deal with it. And then, I mean, <laughs> and there's like transference, so you could, yeah, it could manifest in a way that's unpredictable for yourself, and just um, yeah, cause a lot of grief. I don't know. Uh, so. Sp- you brought up your dad and um, I was going to do that uh, reading in one of your like Q and A's, you were talking about how winning his Memorial race was probably the biggest, biggest achievement in your life. Yeah. To this day, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen in my future. I've won other races. Things have happened. I've, I have some ambitions of doing some international races and things like this. I can't see anything living up to that local Memorial race that I won and I had the battle. That was, that was not an easy win. That went down to the last few seconds. It was me and a, a guy named Josh Allen. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's kind of bounced around the motorcycle world. He's, he's very fast. He's a very t- talented rider. Doesn't know what he wants to do for all those years. He'd race motocross in the pro class for four years, come to the off-road world for two, disappear for two, come back for two years. He's one of those guys. Yeah, I get it. Whereas if, I, I talk about him in the aspect, if this guy could have just had a one-track mind, he he would have beat me. He would have beat, you know, Bobby Prochno and these guys that have built these legacies. He's Jason Schrag, Bobby level. Yeah. He just doesn't have the, the one-track mind. To really, and, but he probably has more fun than all of us combined, too. Who's <laughs> that, eh? But, uh, yeah, that race was um, – Oh yeah. So, so my father, we could do a whole podcast on how great I think my dad was no? <laughs> and what he put towards the motorcycle community, but he started a local motorcycle club in the early nineties, him and a few friends are cutting trail and putting events on. And he put 50, 60, 70 races and then events on over, over the years. So he, he was big into the motorcycle promotion and putting races on. Um, and my brother and I and our local club and a group of about five, ten of us in our local club that are all like family, we continue one of the races he started. And it's a hair scramble race. And we still do it every year. Nice. But uh, when he first passed away, we renamed it to the Rob Het Memorial. And uh, my brother was kind of the driving force for those first couple of years of it being the memorial. And I was still ra- I was racing them. 
So that very first one we did, I was on an RMZ 450 and uh, hadn't been long. Like, like it was, I was recovered from my right leg injury in that, but I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was at a hundred percent, 90% sure. But the mentality side of it just kicked in or I got to 110% like that, just because that was what I had to do. And me and Josh Allen, we banged bars for three, three and a half hours straight. Like it was no breaks. It was like, you think about, you know, the heart rate that these motocross guys and that we have to keep up, you know, if my heart rate was at 180 plus for three hours, I wouldn't be surprised. We never had a break. And uh, yeah, we came into that final, there's a grass track that's big berms, like a motocross track, but um, bowl corners in it and, and things like it, like a machine built track that leads to the finish line. We came down out of the, we came out of the wood, wood line, like side by side, I'm in front, he's in front. And then there's, you know, all these people watching at the gas check and the finish line at the off-road race. There's a couple hundred people, you know, racing these events and, and, and watching. And we were like handlebar locked coming, you know, six, seven corners from the finish. And, uh, we came into one of the very last corners. It's like a bowl corner. And, uh, I wanted to protect the inside line. So I engine braked at the last second, braked a bit for this inside line and I could hear and feel him gas it. And I was like, he's railing that outside and these corners, you rail the outside. You can really make time up. I switched my lineup. I went outside and I just stuffed him. Like we, his handlebars were in my lap. My handlebars were over his front fender. Easy situation for both of us to crash. Luckily we didn't, we stayed on the bikes, but I pushed him out far enough that he made a bobble. I got on the gas. I was able to get to that finish line before him. And like that, it was like such a cool moment. I, I crossed that finish line and I launched my motorcycle into a backflip. I just revved it up, dropped the clutch and launched my bike and crushed my Yashimir exhaust and put my arms in the air and got a hug from my brother and some friends. And I just had to, I, we stood there for a minute just celebrating and soaking it in. And it seems from someone from the outside looking in, it, it, they may not be able to relate to that exact feeling, but it was a big moment for me. Like it was, it was a pretty special moment for me. I could imagine, man. It's like an awesome send off to dad kind of thing. That's pretty special, dude. Like that's really special. Yeah. It's, it's something that we, we all deal with loss. We all deal with these situations, but you know, again, that's just another situation where I wasn't going to take no for an answer. Like, I'm either winning this or I'm putting us both on the ground trying. Like, let's, <laughs> I'm not taking no for an answer. I won't First back down. First place or a DNF because <laughs> you and him are down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we'll give it to third for Christ's sake. Like, um, that, yeah, man. It, yeah. <laughs> sounds to me like you have like laser focus and, uh, and you don't even let yourself off the hook no matter what it's something that's hard to tune into too. Like I've, I've felt I've had that inside me. I have this laser focus. I have this 110% and I have this mindset where if my mind's set on something, I'll push myself either close to or to death trying to accomplish this just because in my mind it's worth it. Yeah. But in my early years, I would naturally come upon that and figure out, Hey, I'm in this zone. Let's take advantage of it. Whereas as you get older, it, you can't, it's not quite a light switch, but it's more like that where you can really, if I need to put myself in that zone, I can do it. I, I, I've kind of figured out how to have that inner monologue and get myself into that zone. Yeah. And that's something that I don't think a lot of people learn how to control that if they ever get to that point. And if you do, it's a really neat thing. Like I, it goes to mountain biking. I can be going for a 20 kilometer mountain bike ride by myself and I can say, let's do another 20. Let's go up these hills. My legs feel like they're going to fall off, but Hey, let's click this switch to go into, you know, 
let's go into the zone. Let's let's go for this right now. And it's an interesting thing to have. And you sometimes you want to click into that zone and you can't quite get it. And that's really frustrating too. But <laughs> but it but it's a really neat thing to experience. It's something, you know, it's it's something that you can experience that just sticks with you. Yeah, I get that with archery. I don't know how to explain it. Like um be completely distracted, start uh doing rounds and then just that's it. All I can sense now is just my entire body, my breath, my release, all of it. And it's super relaxing, super focused. Like uh, I had to stop shooting multiple arrows because I was like lancing all my fletching and almost doing Robin Hood. And like, it's expensive. <laughs> so I just, now I just do one arrow, walk back and forth one arrow. But yeah. It's yeah. Well, that's one of the neat things about it too, is the relatability. It, it transcends motocross and motorcycles. It's, you know, maybe you're like me where, you know, when you're in your teens and twenties, I'd be at a house party standing in the corner. Like none of these people get it. What are these people doing? They're, does anybody here want to push themselves? You're all just, and, and you know, it's, it's, you know, you're kind of selfish thinking about yourself in the corner, but that's also kind of a type of person some people yeah. are, but then you find that one person, whether it's archery, motocross, or painting i don't know but when you actually have that feeling inside you you can relate it transcends any sport or any activity and that's, that's something that's really neat about that too yeah it's what like uh i don't know uh, when i read the book like zen and archery kind of thing uh, it is like they describe it as zen it's just like an ultimate knowing like uh in the yeah. example the fella did is he his instructor uh they call it hitting the goal like hitting the target and in, in the evening, he um, pitch black, the the master archer takes a shot through the dark and hits the goal perfect, right? And he knew, he just walked away, right? And it's just like, because oh, okay. the perfect motion, the perfect everything. And it's just like a Zen moment. And then uh, so then when the fella, because he's like an English guy, learning to do it, he finally figured out, like he could feel the whole moment. And he arrived at the time where he no longer had to look. He knew okay. he hit the goal because everything was so perfect. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's a, I get that in the cross country races. Uh, I go through a whole portion of time where I think I'm an idiot. I made a mistake and I shouldn't be here. And, uh, any minute now, if I can see a way out, I should just take that uh, because like I don't have it in me to finish. And then I'll get disgusted with that voice, and then I have a new one. And it's just like no matter what's ahead, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it if I have to carry the bike out. I'm I'm not fast. I'm just yeah. uh, maybe sometimes below depending on the day. Uh, <laughs> you know i have my moments but like i'm not gonna quit you know so whatever um yeah oh there's one thing that i was wondering when you're talking about uh the way your mind works your kind of focus and like the all that does it make it hard for other people to be around you or to relate to you in certain things one yeah i, I can see that and and I have some close friends. I'm not one of those people with a hundred friends that comes, you know, I have a few close friends I'll confide in and talk to. And even at that, I have trouble telling my wife things. That's who I'm the closest to. And there's things yeah. I can barely get out to her. One of the things with me, with the personality and mindset I have is I love to be alone. I'm a bit of a solo guy in that aspect. If I can't spend half my time or more by myself, then I, I get really anxious and really just like, I, I need to get out of here. and, and, and it's just something I've grown to accept of who I am. You know, that's why a lot of people think, oh, I'll come join you on your ride every day or this or that. I should come join you. And it's great. I'll ride with a sea level dirt biker, mountain biker. It doesn't matter to me. Let's do this. That's fine. I don't care if I'm helping you push your 125 over logs and 
help coaching or training and this and that. But if I don't get that time alone, that's where I'm like, you know what? I, that's, that's kind of one of those things where people say, Hey, you should have let me know you're riding today. I'm like, well, I, I kind of need my alone time to be by myself. And I think a lot of people do themselves a dis- disservice if they're not spending that time alone, because the thoughts that manifest in my head and those mindsets I get into these conversations I have with myself that really help me distinguish who I am inside and, and figure out where I want to be in life, what I want to, what I want to do. Cause it's, there's no one size fits all. There's no white picket fence. We all have our own paths and our own things that we want for ourselves. And if you don't have those conversations with yourself, you're never going to know where you're going. And I can't have that conversation by myself or to myself, unless I'm by myself. If there's somebody else in the room, I, I can't get in that mindset with myself. If I'm, if I'm on a motorcycle ride, a mountain bike ride, or a hike, I like that. You know, hiking is is pretty pure too. You're out by yourself, and there's no, you know, extra tent. There's, there's nothing outside of you. There's no bike that's gonna break down or anything. And you can get in your own mind and really talk to yourself and let yourself know who and what you're doing and what you want to be. I think that's something that some people do miss. You know, I, I obviously can't say everybody, but I, I know people that. They just, they, they won't go out of their house unless someone's coming with them. I want to go for a hike too, but nobody invites me. I want to go riding too, but I won't ride alone. It's like, we'll try to do some more things alone and be more independent because you can learn so much about yourself when you do that. And it's, you know, it's a personality trait of mine, but it's also something I think everybody has inside them to some extent. Oh yeah, man. The, the being alone thing was never a thought for mine, for me. Um, and then uh, Terry... Terry Grant, the man tracker. I'll find his name. Uh, okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, anyway, he, uh, so um, hunting one year, um, I wounded an animal and uh, it was a fatal wound. Um, it was a fatal wound, but oh, like, okay, I, yeah. I had all the skills to, to hunt. I didn't have the skills to track. Right. So I spent two days okay. uh, looking for this animal. And uh, I was unable to find it. And then um, uh, like a week or so later, we found it kind of thing. So it was it was spoiled. But like I, um, I cut my tag and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I felt so horrible. I went home to my wife and like I was pretty much crying, man. Like because uh, I, I felt like a murderer oh, yeah. and not like, not like a hunter because I'd, I'd wasted it. Like I, I knew it was gone. I knew I'd screwed up, but I just kept. So what happened is like it was a. Uh, it was in September and uh, there was snow on the ground and I, I, whatever, I shot the animal with my bow and uh, it was a really good hit. Yeah. He ran off and he was following a herd. So he was just sort of caught up with them and just kept running. They crossed the river. And so somewhere in there, the temperature went from three degrees to 18 degrees and all the snow started to melt away. And uh, oh, okay. so I, I got to the other side and I started looking and I found a bit of trail. But because he ran with the herd, I didn't know which tracks were his and like which were theirs. So I started following them of all course, yeah. as it comes. And then another bunch of snow came and then it went like that was it. So I had no chance. Uh, so I got to Terry's book on how to track just because I was like, this is never going to happen to me again. Like I'm never going to do that. And, uh, <laughs> one of the things he suggested, like to become a good tracker or whatever, the first thing you should do is just go into the woods and just sit there. You can't sit there no more. Yep. Like see how long it takes you before all that aloneness, um, starts to impact you. Like just sit quietly 
because a lot of times we go out alone. We don't even let ourselves be alone. Like, you know, you're talking about the distractions in your head, the conversations with yourself. And so you just oh, like be yeah. alone, alone yeah. and just see how long that takes. And uh, yeah, at first I think I could only do it for like five or 10 minutes before it would get to me. And then yeah, there for like 24 <laughs> yeah. hours, it really doesn't matter. But like, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just going out alone on those hikes and bikes and things. It's like, I'll turn my phone into airplane mode so I don't get a buzz. I'll take some photos of my dog along the way if he's with me and things. And what I like to share on my, like, I like the, like the Instagram and that's like the stories. I like to post in the stories a lot. Um, but a lot of times I'll go for a four hour hike. My phone's in airplane mode. I'll take photos, get back, turn it on. And so I'm gone for four hours, kind of disconnected, no headphones, no nothing. So I can hear and feel everything. And, you know, it's, again, like the, the talks you have with yourself is healing and all of that, but it's, but those distractions are real. Like if you're walking a trail in the woods and you're looking at your phone, texting your buddy about where you're going to dinner that night, that's, it's not the same thing. It's not man. Like, uh, and, and I believe in the healing power of paying attention to yourself, like the, just sitting there oh, yeah. processing everything up to now kind of thing, right? Like hashing out all the, the crap. Sometimes you just realize how much of a selfish prick you are sometimes you think like everyone else is an asshole but like it hashes it all out and, yeah oh it goes both ways yeah if you can be self-aware whether you're being self-aware and patting yourself on the back for a good job or calling yourself an asshole for treating somebody badly or doing something negative or whatever it is keeping yourself in check it goes a long way and then uh, just being self-aware it's something that you know you can't just you know flip a switch and, and you're self-aware it takes years of different exercises and and you know situations to get you there but you know it's, it's a pretty powerful thing once you really start to get into it and a pretty interesting thing too yeah a way i can coin it for moto people is when you stop being a passenger on the bike and start being the rider uh is when you figured it out you know and yeah same thing a lot of us are just passengers in our own body and uh things change once they become the the, the driver and they're aware of who they are and what they're doing and their impacts on everyone else versus just what's in it for me like i don't know yeah. Well, it's it, like motorcycle riding and racing is, is such a perfect kind of comparative thing to me, j just because when you're riding a motorcycle, you can't think about what you've done. You can't think about the future. There's only that one exact moment. You can't like you can look ahead. Obviously, there's techniques and things. There's technique involved of looking to that corner and knowing where you're going. But that corner in front of you doesn't matter. What matters is what's underneath your tire. So motocross or dirt biking off-road this motorcycle racing it's not something you can think of the past you can't think of the future it's all of a book right now it's a feeling you have to feel the dirt under your tires you have to feel what that motorcycle is doing you have to feel the way your body's reacting and when you can transverse that into your everyday life and just feel that present moment and how do you feel in this moment that's kind of where that self-awareness comes in of you know being present with yourself and and really just taking care of yourself in that manner yeah yeah i think so i never ride when i'm not present uh because that's it's just like a recipe for disaster oh i was gonna say just on the self-awareness as aspect this this might seem a little uh a little out there and funny to some people but i had this one moment a couple of years ago where the last three four years i've been getting a lot more into yoga um, one for my injuries and recovery and things like that. It makes my, I feel younger than like at 31 years old, I feel better than I did at 21 because of essentially yoga, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's such a big, a big healing thing that way. But it was also, I, I really enjoyed kind of like the, 
I, I like the corpse pose at the end. I like the stillness. I like the, you know, the complete nothingness around you and no distractions. I had this moment where I, I did yoga at home for a couple of years before I ever went to a class. And that kind of speaks to my, more to my competitive mindset where, oh, you want to go ride motocross? Hold on. Let me ride a motocross track for a year by myself, develop the skills for these jumps, and then I'll come ride with you so I don't make an ass of myself. And I kind of did that with the yoga thing too. But um, I really got into like the hot yoga and, and all that. I really like the heat and everything just in general. So that spoke to me and was a really easy thing for me to get into and, and love. But I had this moment where I was laying on my back and it was a small class, about five or six of us. It was after about an hour, an hour 20 long um, yoga session with a really you know in-depth and well-spoken instructor. And I was laying there and I was in a dark place at this point. Like I was not in a good place of myself mentally, you know, to talking about six months before that up to that time. And I was feeling really heavy with demons and darkness kind of inside me. And I was laying there and I had this weird kind of like, not, not a come to life moment, but this is feeling. And I felt like things were escaping me. And my eyes were closed, but I felt like I could feel darkness escaping my body. I felt it's almost like I could feel demons coming out of my chest and floating up into nothingness. And it, it caught me off guard. And I'm sit, sit, sitting there or laying there on my back calm. And I'm thinking, what the hell is this? What is happening? I feel like this depression, this anxiety, and this, like, it's not leaving me forever, but I feel like I'm expelling it from my body. And that was such a powerful moment for me. Like, what kind of work did I do to get to this point where these last six months, a year, two years of building this up inside of me, I'm expelling some of it right now. And it was so powerful to me that, like, that's a, it's kind of a situation or a feeling that I, I can't chase it. I can't find it. Those little feelings, I don't, you get them once a year max. And it's, since then I have, and it's, it's not something I can bring on willingly, but it was to have like at 20, whenever that happened, 28 years old, 29 years old, when I had that situation happen, it was something that was brand new to me, but it was a feeling of relief that I just hadn't felt in so long. And it just really came to me like, you know what? I get my, my passion of motorcycle racing. I get so much out of that, but I'm not on my motorcycle right now. I'm on my back in a room with five girls and guys but essentially by myself in my head and I'm getting this amazing euphoria, not from a motorcycle. How is that possible? <laughs> so it started making me think a little bit more outside the box of who am I and what else can I gather from my life? That's not related to two wheels. How can I expand my, my mind and, you know, happiness and everything like that and self-awareness without a motorcycle, because those things get torn away from you, whether it's somebody who's, you know, God forbid you're paralyzed or in a really bad accident and you just can't get back to it. Or you have injuries that take 12 to 24 months to get back to riding, let alone the level you were at racing. Yeah. Those, like, nothing's forever. Like you can't just have, if you just rely on motorcycle riding to make you happy, which is what I did for many, many years, it'll get taken away from you. If you rely on your spouse to make you happy and then they're gone the next two years from now, you're going to crumble and you can build up from that crumble. But if you don't learn that, like, Hey, you're responsible for your own happiness and well-being, and you don't need any outside influences to get into that moment to figure out who you are and why you're happy and what you need. That's you know it, again, it took me years and years to learn and figure that out, and I'm still learning. I'm, I'm young. I have lots yeah, to learn. To go. But it's just something where you can, yeah, you can recognize that and start to pursue these different directions and listen to yourself a little bit more. If, you know, maybe I shouldn't ride my motorcycle today because I'm not present. Like you said, yeah, you, you ask for trouble when you're out there, when you're not into it. Yeah. Maybe I do need to do this activity or do this instead. And, and it, 
it's it's interesting. Life's a funny thing like that uh, that way. <laughs> yeah, it's shocking where you can find joy. Like uh, we find it somewhere and we hang on to it. Like for instance, just a motorcycle. Like it gives joy. People hang on to the, that as the source of joy, and they uh, don't always look for other sources. Exactly. And it's just like there are other sources. You just need to, I don't know, give them a chance. Like some things aren't as awesome as uh, dirt bikes or motorcycles. Like you know, but, yeah. <laughs> I haven't found anything that can replace yeah, like it. But. It's a different thing, right? Like, could you, yeah, uh, painting replacing motorcycling. I don't think that could be a, an equal, but they could provide a kind of joy. No, like maybe you could paint motorcycles, and then that gives you happiness. Like, yeah, uh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. It, it, sometimes it just comes down to some kind of you know something you can put your passion or just your time into that you somewhat enjoy, and you know it's it's uh, my my I've done the Oregon coast drive a few times in my van alone with my wife, with friends. And my wife and I did it a few years ago where I, again, I had this neat moment on the ocean. I woke up early, went out by myself and looking at the waves coming in and I'm not a water guy. You're not going to see me really on a boat or anything like that. You know, I'm not, I'm not much of a water guy, but I was sitting there looking at the ominous ocean and I had this feeling of just being small. The ocean could just kill me right now. If I walked out there, I have no chance. Yeah. I'm not that great, right? This the Mother Nature could take me out whenever it wants. And it's a neat little moment that, that I had with myself. The following year, I did the Oregon Coast with two of my friends. We loaded up three motorcycles, three bicycles in my van. We left for a trip down there, had a hell of a good time. But I tried to do that. I got up early. I walked out to the ocean and thought, let's get that feeling I had 12 months ago. I like that. It wasn't there. I was just looking at water that time. <laughs> There's moments, man. I've been... Like in Maui on on the ocean yeah. and just like whatever. It's awesome. Well, it kind of comes down to that cliche, you know, stop and smell the roses. You, do you remember that moment? I don't know. How, how long ago was that for you that you did that? Oh, 12 years. Okay. But still at an age where you were probably a bit more mindful and able to remember. Like I, I think back to me when I was a teenager up until my early mid-20s, I went and raced. I'd, I'd go Idaho. I'd go Montana. I'd go to these places. I'd go race. I don't remember the drive. I don't remember the scene. I've, I've driven by these beautiful, magnificent mother nature creations. I never even looked. And I just get to this race site. I put my hundred miles in with my head down and I go home. And like, it's, that was my mindset because I was very obsessed and pursuing who, you know, the path that I thought life had set out for me. But now, you know, you drive a little bit slower. You, you know, you appreciate the moment swimming with that fish and the sharks and you appreciate the moment along the Oregon coast. You have a motorcycle in your van. You're going somewhere to ride. But hey, take in this moment that you're, and, and again, it's this, I, I'm kind not ashamed, but a little upset that it took me, you know, 10, 15 years to figure that out. But at the same time, I'm so glad I figured it out now because there's people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, people that die without ever getting into that and, and realizing those moments that really matter. Yeah, man. There, there's no point crying over spilt milk. Like, uh, you can't change the yeah. past, but you're you're aware now, so whatever like yeah you got a long life ahead of you hopefully yeah you know acceptance acceptance of what you or someone else has done to you in the past can be tough too and you know for me it's where what i accomplished in my life or what i didn't accomplish like again going back to that 13 14 year old kid that i was like i i fell asleep with motocross movies playing on a vcr i would watch ricky carmichael and i would make notes i would see his foot came off after he entered that corner, or maybe him compared to Kevin Windham, Kevin Windham's feet are on the pegs until the apex of that corner. And I'd make notes and I'd fall asleep as a kid making notes of these guys watching them. 
um, I saw a video of Ricky Carmichael on an exercise bike and I begged my dad to get me an exercise bike. And a month later he went to a pawn shop and has a $25 price tag on it. He gets the, you know, this, the shittiest old exercise bike. And I almost killed myself on that as a 14, 15 year old, just like, okay, let's go till I feel like I can't go. And you know, it's, it's your whole identity just gets wrapped up in that one thing and you're just so dedicated towards it. But again, that young person of me, I, those career days in school, right? 14 years old, Malcolm, what's, what are you going to do 10 years from now, five years from now? And my answer, I had the same answer. Suzuki is going to hire me. They're going to pay me a hundred thousand dollars and I'm going to go race GNCCs and any other off-road event that they want. That's it. What if that doesn't pan out? End of conversation. <laughs> oh, what, what about this or that? Or you get injured? I said, Suzuki is going to hire me. This is my salary and this is my path. But you can't pick your path, man. Life kind of, life will, you know, throw these curves at you and, and you know, throw these at you know, other directions. And I spent so many years just fighting these curves, just trying to keep that steering wheel and those wheels straight because in my mind, this path of professional motorcycle racing this is my path. Nothing will knock me off. You go through these injuries, this loss, your family, your friends, and all these. I spent so much time trying to get back to this person that I, the young version of me, always thought I was and was destined to be. And, you know, instead of listening to these situations and that life was really speaking and guiding me towards, that for me, it created a lot of unhappiness and unfulfillment because I was focused on what I didn't do. I didn't get that contract. I didn't win that race. I didn't get to do a championship here or there. And I kept trying to piece this life back together from these injuries and hardships I had. And this life I was trying to piece back together was the same life the 13-year-old version of me had. I was 25, still trying to force these pieces in line. And it's, you know, I, you know, a while ago there I mentioned I didn't get, you know, my life turned upside down. It was like a bomb went off, right? And that bomb changed so many things and all these yep. pieces just had no chance of fitting back together the way I wanted them until I learned to be more present, think differently, act differently, act differently, and then essentially live differently, which is what you see a lot of me doing now. That's when I was able to start rebuilding a solid foundation that you can be proud of and stand on top of and then build off of that because without that solid foundation, that you can't build off of, you know, your 13 year old goals for yourself. <laughs> You're not going to progress and move forward. No, you know, no self-progression off of that. Right. So what, if it was career day today, if someone was to ask you where you're going to be in five years or 10 years, what would your answers be? <laughs> A more, you know, I, I did not, I've never asked myself really that question super hard and, and thought of it because I've turned more into the go with the flow type of guy a little bit. Fair enough. Although I am still a very, you know, passionate physical guy or five years from now i'll be ready for a 24-hour race at the drop of a hat um, but i want to be just even a happier version of myself a more fulfilled person of myself because that's something i kind of struggle with a little bit you know I'm, i still deal with this unfulfillment of like i should have three highest e gold medals by now and when i think of that it, it can that sounds so simple to somebody if i talk to somebody who's a casual rider and races once in a while that, oh, you've raced here and you did this. And I say, yeah, but I was supposed to be this guy. And if I let my mindset think about something so trivial and dumb as I'm supposed to be a GNCC pro with ISDE gold medals and a trophy room full of gold plaques. And if I let my mindset get into that stupid, dumb, materialistic side of things, I can download, downward spiral into that because I just get this feeling of not fulfilling who I thought I was supposed to be. So as long as five years from now, I can just 
actually stand on my own two feet and say who I am right now is who I want to be, whether I'm where, where I want to be, but I'm who I want to be. I'd say that would be kind of the ultimate goal is to just be happy with who I am and the, and the path I'm pursuing. Cause again, there's no one single path. There's no white picket fence. Somebody loves business, doesn't want to have anything else. They love money. They want to make money. Hey, if you're happy with that, a lot of people aren't, but if that's actually what makes you happy then good. I don't have a big desire to be super rich, to have a lot of material goods. That's not a big desire burning inside me. So if in five years from now, I own a million dollar business because I didn't sleep, you know, multiple nights of the week because I stayed up till 2 a.m. working in an office and I have all this money and this big house and all this stuff. That's I don't see myself in that situation with a smile on my face. If I'm sleeping in my van with a motorcycle on the back and I'm going to a race, whether I'm racing pro or vet expert and I have a wife that understands my lifestyle and my dog's still coming with me, I can look ahead, see myself doing that and, and really see that being a path that I'll be happy with. And that seems like a better path anyway. Like uh, yeah. <laughs> I find some of the people who are constantly seeking stacks of cash, they're, um, they don't, they, they're unfulfilled and they feel like that is going to fill their hole, but it's not going to. And uh, no, sort of never does. <laughs> like I bet you, guys like Bezos and, and, uh, uh, whatever the Bill Gates, I, they yeah. feel unfulfilled, right? Like they haven't, they haven't realized what it is that they're trying to do. And, um, yeah, I can't speak, obviously we can't speak on an individual exactly, but I bet those types of people are some of the unhappiest people in the world. Like I, when I was a bit younger, I started reading a couple of business books and I read like Kevin O'Leary and uh, Jim for living. I would read their books about business and life. All of them had one real big thing in common one, two, three, four times divorced, this much money, lost this much, made this much, and stories of being in an office smoking cigars till 3 a.m. with calculators and receipts and this and that. I'm like, good for you if that's what makes you feel fulfilled. I doubt it does, but if it truly does, then good for you. But but for me, it's not a path that I see myself wanting, any, having any desire to go down towards. Yeah, no, me either. I mean, it'd be sweet. I'd love to get the Joe Rogan deal of like a hundred million dollars to talk to people. That'd be sweet. Yeah. But like, uh, hey, maybe this is the know, podcast that gets lottery. it done for you. <laughs> yeah, I know. it'd be awesome. But I think that even with maximum retention of everybody who rides a motorcycle, there's just not enough of us uh, on the planet. Oh yeah. Versus yeah. just yeah. So, but hey, if, right, if well, you're enjoying it, please. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm having the, the, like, I'm really having an amazing time doing this. Like, uh, it's Oh just, yeah, me too. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I, yeah, I couldn't, I never thought that I would be doing this and, uh, and here I am and it is not nearly as awkward as I thought it would be. And it is absolutely fulfilling. Like, uh, it, I have these connections with people that I've never physically met yet. Uh, I do hope to have like a, a race one day where everyone can, compete against each other and like <laughs> that'd be so crazy oh yeah yeah, yeah. Um, i mean whatever but the the world's so screwed up with the pandemic like uh like i know we're almost to the point where people can hang out again and races will all start again and i'm looking yeah. forward to that um a great deal uh like i don't know my career just started and i'm almost old enough to end it <laughs> so <laughs> you know uh, a two year break in it. That's really bad. But, uh, at my age, I don't have many years, uh, ahead. Uh, well, I mean, I honestly do, but you know, every time I ride, I hurt myself now. So 
whatever. Yeah, I mean, we still ride with guys in their 70s still, right? Yeah, it's yeah. just a matter of the risk you want to take. I'm, I'm thinking about the whole coming up next time podcast, the way you're describing it, kind of reminds me of Built to Ride, my, my business here too, because mine was kind of brought on by injury and not being able to race. I want to be involved in the sport still. And that kind of, even though I did come back to race and do a lot of other things after that, but uh, it kind of sounds like the pandemic and the lack of riding and being around people and events and things, maybe that's kind of what this podcast is kind of being born out of is just kind of, you have, you started riding in your thirties, that passion that you have for it. I doubt it's one iota less than mine or Stephen Ford's or Graham Jarvis's. I doubt that your passion is any less than ours. It's, it's a sport that sucks you in and then builds you up and, and can treat you, can miss, it can mistreat you and treat you well. And the fact that you've brought this to fruition, you know, it, well, it, it really seems like something where it's something like what you're doing here. You can't just, you couldn't just, you know, put your toe in the water and test it out. You had to jump right in. Like you said, you had 10 interviews before people even heard your voice and your podcast. You had to jump in and go for it. And, and that's a beautiful thing. It's, <laughs> you know, it's a very respectable thing. Thanks, man. I appreciate that a great deal. Um, we'll wrap this up here. Uh, do you have sponsors? Anybody you want to plug here at the end? I mean, obviously built to ride. Yeah. My little company built to ride, you know, I get a lot of support and love off of that. And, you know, I, I hope that that speaks more to who I am than who, what the business is, you know, my wife and I run it together. If I ran our Instagram page, it would probably be a lot less organized and a lot more sporadic where she keeps things looking very nice and, and straight, which is a blessing. You know, my, my wife is, is kind of like, I, I, I always say we're Rocky and Adrian where I'm the bruiser and I'll just go in and, and kill myself for something, but she's kind of the artistic and, you know, uh, level-headed maybe is, isn't quite the, the right thing. Cause it's, it's not like she holds me back from anything. She supports no. me a hundred percent on any crazy endeavor I want, but, but it's a really, really nice to have that person in my corner that, you know, kind of fulfills me, you know, fills every little gap. Right. I think every relationship is different. And when people get to with somebody who's too much to like them, it works out sometimes. I see it not work out a lot. Whereas, you know, we, we have our gaps that we fill with each other that really, really work well. We're, we're a really great couple in that aspect. And, and so I definitely need to thank my wife is where I'm going with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've been, uh, there's, there's a shop shop in uh, the Okanagan here called Valley Motorsports that I've been going to since I was five, six years old, seeing my dad buy helmets and bikes there same owners, a lot of the same people still work there. So I shop local, you know, I, I don't buy foot pigs and dirt bike parts online. I buy all myself through my local shop, another local shop, Riders Edge Suspension, really known for suspension work in Western Canada, but um, they're also a Husky dealer and gas gas dealer. So a couple of local shops that, again, am I a factory sponsored guy from them? No, but do they support me well? And, and you know, I, I feel good about giving them the money that I work hard to earn. I want to feel good with where, I spend that money. I buy a tape measure from the local small hardware mom and pop shop. I haven't stepped foot into a Walmart for almost 10 years just because I'm so, I'd like to be conscious of where my money's going and what I'm, who I'm supporting. So these people that support my racing endeavors, more so individuals and companies and people who kind of get who I am as a person. If, if a company steps up to support me and my racing endeavors, it's not going to be because I won this race and I had these results. I like to think it's because they like who I am as a person. So hopefully a year from now, maybe I'll have somebody else in my corner that's, you know, supporting me. If not, that's okay. Cause you know, I, I like doing things on my own anyway, but there's a few brands, a few things out there that I, 
I follow closely just because I like what they do. Yeah. And who knows what comes to fruition in the future, but you can't rely, you can't rely on that for any kind of you know, just <laughs> lottery, man. Uh, anything from agree on that gravy on the side. If someone decides to pretty much to <laughs> like to hold out for that is a uh, 13 year old version of used choice. <laughs> like the, the grown. Yeah, exactly. You know, I can't bank on it any longer than I already have, man. That's done enough damage. <laughs> All right. I'm going to stop recording here and then we can just chat while it does the upload. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode. I want to thank my guests for taking the time to sit down and chat with me. A special thank you to you, my supporters. Without you, this would not be possible. If you enjoyed the show, give it a five-star rating. And if you haven't already, be sure to like, subscribe, and share. If this is your first time listening, I encourage you to take the three-episode challenge. Once again, thank you for your continued support, and stay tuned to find out what's coming up next time.